All right, book of Ephesians. Uh, if you uh, need to get your way around, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then there's these long books, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's, I just, that's the only way I remember it. So you all have your own acronyms, General Electric Power Company, uh, Ephesians, uh, chapter, I didn't, I didn't think it's that funny. I've been doing it for 20 years before Hosanna. Okay. We have been making our way through the story of the Bible, focus now. Uh, this wasn't written down, I'm off topic, okay. The, the, we've been going through the story of the Bible, right? The creation was good, God called it good, God created the world. He calls man very good, he places him in his, in his garden, in his temple, in his place where God dwells, and very quickly, uh, humanity messes it up. And they hide, and they sow fig leaves, and they feel shame. And God comes uh, not looking for Adam, not because Adam's lost, because he wants Adam to come out of the bushes. And Adam comes out and God curses things and he blesses things and he promises things and he promises that there will be a serpent uh, and the serpent will come and uh, a, a seed, a child will come and crush the serpent. And as the child crushes the serpent, the serpent will strike at the heel of the child. Years pass. Abraham comes out of the blue. God decides Abraham's the man, and Abraham is going to have a child. This child is going to become a nation. This nation is going to have land. They are going to bless the world. And Abraham has children. They have children who end up in Egypt, and they get enslaved in Egypt. And then what happens? They, they get stuck. And here, here comes Moses, and now Moses leads them out, and he gives them a law, and he tells the people of God how to relate to God as a nation and how to relate to him in regards to their sin. And so there's separation that's made between the two. And the people go into the land, and they sort of get it, and up comes the judges, and they're terrible for the most part. And here comes the promised king, and who is this king? Is it uh, King Saul? No, it's King David. And here's, here's David, and in 2 Samuel 7, here, yeah, 2 Samuel 7, he's promised what? You'll have an everlasting dynasty. You'll, you'll have someone on the throne forever. And within a few generations, they're not in the land anymore, and they're de totally deported by Babylon and Assyria. And so they're down by the waters of Babylon, sitting down to pray, singing lament songs over and over again. Why, God, have you done this? Ezra and Nehemiah come along. They bring them back into the land. And then here comes Rome eventually to take over the land that the Babylonians and Assyrians had given back to Israel. And they're an occupied people. Here comes Jesus. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He seems like the Messiah, and they kill him. And, of course, he comes from the dead, Holy Spirit drops like a bomb, Acts chapter 2, and then the church is born, and the Spirit lights the flame. At least that's what we're going to sing at the end of the service. But is that what happened? I told Paul to sing this song so I could critique it a little bit. Uh, let me just ask two questions off the front end. What is a church, and when did the church begin? Now, as you think about that and try to pay attention to what I'm saying, you may find that the answer at first is very easy. And that the longer you think about it, you go, uh, well, I'm not really sure. You know, in 2011, 81% of American Christians said that they did not need a church in order to spiritually flourish as a Christian. 81%. Spirituality is seen as an individual expression. It's my personal relationship with God, 
And so you might see it uh, in, on Instagram. Uh, you hike up uh, Baldy and then you put, here I am at church. It's like you tell the pastor where you are Sunday morning, you know, here I am at church. Or you log in and there are th the pastor's a thousand miles away and you go, here I am at church. And for some reason, the kids are so well behaved. The coffee is just right. The Bible is open to the wrong page, sometimes the right page. And you take this picture and you put it online to express this kind of spirituality. On top of that, 12% of the U.S. has stopped going to church in the last 25 years. That's a lot of people, 40 million Americans. And most of them say they're evangelical. And they're not saying, we're not, they're saying, we're still Christians. We just think like the 81% of American Christians that it's not important. It's not necessary. It's not needed. So we have the 81%. And on top of that, we treat church like consumers. Have you ever seen Google reviews of churches? Now, I just checked last night just to make sure. And yes, even the pastor's kid gave us a five-star review, thank God. Or we were going to have to sit down and have a little talk about, you know, the preaching's okay, you know, type of thing. Let me read you some reviews from churches. These aren't ours. Just got bored quick. The worship was not great. Four stars out of five because there's no worship after the sermon. The worship leader looked like he had just gotten done mowing the yard. One star. Not welcoming. No one said hello or goodbye. So 81% says it's not necessary. Those who do go treat it as consumers. And then all, lastly, it's a calendar item that competes with other things. The wealthier you are, the more flexible you are, the more places you can go. That's why if you go into poor communities, people are at church every week. Why? Because they can't go anywhere. And so you have Youth sports, you have the night before, you have the day of, you have travel, you have vacation, you have uh, your kids you want to go visit, and you have the kids who are coming, and then you've got, you know, your own kids, and, and they're sick this week, and no, this week, and no, this week, and no, this week. I mean, I remember a time when our kids were young, we didn't go to church for three months together, because they just kept getting sick one after the other. Please make it stop. I mean, people say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but that doesn't apply to when it's raining and you have to go to church. It's like, I can't get in the car, it's raining. And on top of all this, many of us have come to Christ, let's be honest, as a reaction to a very bad church experience, a very ineffective church. Many of you know my own story. I grew up liberal, United Methodist. My wife grew up Roman Catholic. We would... Uh, describe those experiences as dead. I mean, it was like when I would go to church, time would stop during the service and the sun would stand still in the sky. And you're like, how is this not ending over and over and over again? And then, but I went to Sunday school because the teacher was great. And then I went into camp to campus and this group called InterVarsity scooped me up and there were two to 300 of us and no one was forcing them to go there. And it was dynamic and amazing. And people were sharing their faith and the stuff at church was stupid, dumb, stand still, sun in the sky. And then my sophomore year, so this is after one year of Bible studies, amazing stuff, I got invited to a church and it was very Southern. Baptist. Let me explain this to you. Manicured fingers, man, I mean, I guess you don't manicure anything else, but manicure, rings on the hand, Brother Bob was on stage on a throne during the singing, perfect hair. 
And I, and, and I didn't know his last name. It was just brother was his first name. I guess Bob was his first name too. And if you didn't know his name, he was just brother, you know? And it's just, it was so different than anything I'd ever experienced. And so I never went in there. I worked with the youth. And on Sunday mornings, I'd go and work with the youth and I'd leave. Go with the youth, with the youth and I'd leave. And then I graduated and I went to a discipleship program. And none of those people went to a church. They were in ministry. They, they baptized me in a river. I, I never even thought, oh yeah, baptisms are probably done in a church. No, no, in a river. And then I went to seminary with absolutely no intention of working at a church. I mean, who would want to do that? That's where the people who lacked gifting worked. <laughs> Joke's on me, or maybe not. <laughs> and so the word church was always the opposite of Jesus. It was as if Jesus was preoccupied with critiquing the thing he loved. And so you'd read the New Testament and his critique of the religious leaders, and you'd say, well, that's the church he's critiquing. And so it was always criticism. Ministry set up apart from a church felt more faithful. Now, the word church that we translate church is just assembly. And years before, this is now the question, when did the church begin? This is actually a hard question because the word church appears 65 times in the Old Testament, always related to the assembly of God's people. Let me show it to you. Deuteronomy 9. This is, the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly. Guess what that word is? It's the same word we have for church in the New Testament. Joshua 8 refers to Joshua gathering all the people to hear the law. This is what he says. There was not a word of all that Moses has commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly. Guess what word that is? That's the word church. And in the New Testament, it has secular meaning. For example, Acts 19, there's a riot in Ephesus and the guy's trying to get the people to calm down. And in verse 32, this is what he says. The assembly was in confusion. Guess what word that is? That's church. Verse 39, if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal church assembly. Same word. Verse 41, after he had said this, he dismissed the church. So at its most basic meaning, church just means assembly, and it's always been the assembly of God. When did the church start? Okay, maybe in a new way in the New Testament, but it's been going on since God's people existed. And so we go to the book of Ephesians now. That's a long intro. That's okay. I'm in charge. The book of Ephesians is a smaller version of the book of Romans. This is written 30 years after uh, Jesus has died and resurrected. This is the Apostle Paul, who's been in ministry for 30 years, now under house arrest in 62 AD. And I just want to talk to you about what we are separated from, what we are reconciled to, and what we are created to be. So if you can just remember separated, reconciled, created, and repeat those to me, that's a test for my kids. I'm asking you to pay attention. He just looked up, separated, reconciled, created. You'll be good. Okay, what are we separated from? Verse 11, this is Ephesians 2 now. In the first century, the apostle Paul had a grid for thinking about the world. And it was only, there were only two people in the world. There were the Gentiles and there were the Jews. There were the, those who weren't Jews and those who were Jews. And that's how he thinks about this. So he's writing to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and he's saying, remember. Remember what it was like before. 
Remember the amazing grace? I once was lost. Remember that moment. Remember that you formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, in the body by human hands. I just marvel at how comfortably we talk about circumcision. Like, if you did not grow up in church and then you read the New Testament, and every week it was circumcision, 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 circumcision. You'd be like, these people are crazy. But we are so used to it. Paul calls the Jews and Gentiles. The Jews are the circumcised ones. The Gentiles are the uncircumcised one. So remember the story of the Bible now. The practice of circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant, a blood covenant, a cut. And for the Jews, if you lacked that mark, you were spiritually lost. Now, a male Jew would pray every morning this prayer. Thank you that I'm alive this morning. Thank you that I am not a Gentile. Thank you that I am not a woman. That is the context for Paul writing Ephesians 2. In fact, Jews believed Gentiles were created for the fuel to fuel hell. If a Jew married a Gentile, a boy or a girl, they would hold a funeral for that Jewish person as if to say, you're dead. You don't exist anymore. You were not allowed to help a Gentile woman in childbirth if no one else was around because you would be bringing another Gentile into the world. In Romans, Paul lists the Jewish privileges. This is the opposite of Ephesians chapter 2. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs are the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs is the patriarchs. From them is traced all human industry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. So Paul in Romans goes, look at all the things the Jews have. And in Ephesians, he goes, look at all the things you don't have, Gentiles. These are the disabilities. And again, you have the story of the Bible. You don't, ha you don't have Abraham. I mean, let's just go through each list. In, in, in verse 12, there's five things. You are separated from Christ. That is, you weren't looking for Christ ever. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. The promises aren't yours. You're foreigners. You're a stranger to the covenants. We've gone through the story of the Bible. That promise to Abraham isn't for you. That promise for David isn't for you. It was for them without hope and without God in the world. So your life was meaningless. You suppressed the truth of God in a lie. One commentator has said they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. That's their story. And Paul is reminding him, that's what you were. You know, if you haven't found Jesus, that's what you are. They are separated from God. And listen, Christians, every once in a while, you should try to remember what it was like. Some of you, your testimony is, I can't remember what it was like, and praise God for you, raised in a Christian home. But for many of us, we remember exactly what it was like. We remember exactly what it felt like, and it was not good. But the Gentiles are not the only ones, 15 and 16. He talks about reconciling both of them to God. In the cross. So the external markers that led to the disdain of the Gentiles actually don't matter anymore either. You know, we have, we have these stories that we tell ourselves. You guys all do this. I do this. We have a story that makes sense of the world in our heads, right? And those stories are usually uh, what other people have told us. We tend to admire. We tend to believe the people we admire, right? So 
whatever, whoever those people are that we admire, they have told us the story of the world and ourselves, and we have believed it. And perhaps you have told the story of yourself. My identity is my Myers-Briggs test, my ethnicity, my athleticism or lack thereof it, or your giftedness or your hobbies. But here comes the story of the Bible now where God gets the final word of who you are, that you are created in his image, that you are, as Psalm 8.5 says, crowned with glory and honor, and yet you know something is not right. This is the story that God tells you. You know, you know in your being that something is wrong, that there is enmity, that there is, why, why can't I get along with certain people? Why am I unable to do the right thing sometimes. And you know, the story has, has words for this, words like sin, the words like being enslaved. So the problem isn't, the enmity isn't that you just make bad decisions. The problem is you're enslaved by them so badly, you're not even the one making them. It's deep and it's terrible. And you feel it because you feel the emptiness. You feel the loneliness. Separated from God, separated from each other. Here's verse 14, mentions a dividing wall, a barrier. Verse 16 mentions the word hostility. This is the temple. You know, in the last 100, 125 years, they have found the signs that were in the temple in Greek. 1871, the other one's 1935. Here's what the sign read. Tell me if this sounds like a barrier to you. No foreigner may enter within the barrier enclosed around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will only have himself to blame for their ensuing death. So you're a Gentile, and you're trying to get to God, and the barrier is get close and die. In fact, the Apostle Paul, three years before he wrote Ephesians, had this happen to him when they thought in Acts he'd brought a Gentile into the temple, and they tried to kill him. And what's so wild about that is a guy from Ephesus that was with him. And so here's a guy from Ephesus. They think he's coming to the temple. They're trying to kill him. Don't, can't they read the sign? And Paul says, these are all barriers. These are, uh, this is enmity between people. I mean, listen, every culture I have ever been in implicitly thinks they're better than every other culture, except maybe one or two that I won't mention. That's the dividing wall. I, and I, when I grew up, I thought that was primarily racial, right? Like it's in the United States, it's primarily uh, between whites and blacks. And then I got overseas and I saw the caste system. And then I remember going to a church and I saw, uh, it was with Kenyans and the Kenyans were warming me about Christians and other tribes because they were terrible people. And I was in an Asian conference and it was the most racist conference I'd ever heard with my ears about how they were the best nation, best people, and God had chosen them, their country, to finish the Great Commission because all the other Christians were terrible. There is something fundamental in all of us that tries to lift ourselves up above other people. I mean, high school and college students, listen, just ask yourself, how do we rank people at school? The fact that there's a rank tells you that we fundamentally try to lift up ourselves over others. And so when we talk about Jesus, we have to talk about this separation. We have to talk about this alienation. You cannot get to grace without repentance. We talk a lot about grace. You can't get to it unless you first recognize the alienation and the separation from God and from each other. You know it from experience. You, you shouldn't have to convince yourself. 
So we're separated from God and others, but now reconciled. I, I love the word but in verse 13. And if, if you, um, if, if you want to underline and highlight words, but is always a good one. Verse 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So God does not hide our evil. He does not sweep it under the rug. He deals with it in his son. You know, there's a line in The Magician's Nephew when Aslan says, um, you know, the worst, I will make sure the worst comes upon me. That, that, that's what this is talking about, the blood of Christ. And we know this in stories where an innocent person can win a battle and can, as a substitution, take care of the enmity. We see this, Lily Potter gives her life for her son. Aslan dies for the child. Neo gives up his life in the Matrix. Saving Private Ryan, the platoon, gives up their life for one man. We, we know this in our stories. One person can assuage wrath in some way. Now, the barrier Paul is talking about is temple. If you go into the temple, you'd see barriers, and you'd see another barrier, and another barrier, and another barrier, another barrier. Then you'd see the curtain and the Holy of Holies, and that thing is 60 feet high, and that thing is soundproof, and you can't get in there. And so you have the Jews with all these visual reminders, their separation, and then you're a Gentile, and you're on the outside, and you've got a sign that says, don't come in here or you're dead. And out of this, the church is born? Well, what happened when Jesus died? The curtain what? Rips in half. Earthquakes, rocks splitting. And what is that? That's saying the temple is not where God's presence is anymore. That's what that's saying. It's the temple is where, which contained the glory of God has now had its curtain split. So the Holy of Holies is now spilled out into everywhere else. And now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's reconciliation. Look at verse 15. His purpose was to create one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, to put an end to their hostility. So now there's one group. These groups are reconciled in the cross. These Jews and Gentiles now come. If you want to take Paul's language in another place, the Gentiles are grafted in. Now listen, there's a lot of talk about Israel in the news right now. And I just want to maybe give you a category. There's, there's the political category. Let justice roll down like waters in Israel for, for Israel's people. And then there's the theological category. And you might hear Christians on TV say something like this. Abraham's promise to God's people to have the land is still for today. And therefore... We, as another country, should make our efforts to make sure those people always get the land. I'm sure you've heard this. There's just one problem, and it's for you to think about, and that is in the New Testament, the Gentiles and the Jews are now one group. The Gentiles are now grafted in, and all the promises of Abraham are theirs. There's not two groups anymore. Paul says it explicitly. One group. It's not that the Gentiles have taken over. It's that they've been brought in. And now, verse 18, they all have access to the Father by the Spirit. That's reconciliation. And I can't tell you how often I've seen that 
Um, I've seen Indian, and pa- if you know anything about uh, Pakistan and India, they're not supposed to get along. In fact, if you lose in cricket, uh, if you're an Indian or Pakistani, you have to hide because people might kill you for losing. And so I've been with Indian Pakistani believers in all-night prayer meetings, embracing one another, hugging with one another. I have been with Ethiopians and Eritreans, all-night prayer meetings, doing evangelism together, reconciled, praying. To, these are people who were in civil war with one another. I was with a group of Iranians, and when they found out they had a Jewish Christian teaching them the New Testament, Testament, they started weeping and embracing each other and crying and saying, thanks be to God. My last week living in his, had the craziest experience I've ever had in my life. It was a Korean preaching in his second language, English, which was hard for me to understand. This is a guy who'd been held by the Taliban for 40 days. He's been tra- his English sermon was being translated by an Afghan guy who used to be in the Taliban and used to be a religious police officer who spoke English as a second language. And I don't even know how he understood the Korean. I'm pretty sure he didn't because I didn't. And now he's translating it into Dari. And in front of him are 70 new believers from Afghanistan these 70 believers were religious minorities because of their tribe, and they were persecuted in Iran and Afghanistan, and now they're being persecuted by Muslims because they've converted to Christ. And then over here is the Romanian who's leading them in worship, who's written songs in Dari. And I'm just kind of, and now they're singing, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And they're all singing, and they're embracing, and they're holding. I'm like, this is the craziest thing. There's no club that could create that. There's a big world out there, 22 million Christians in Asia in 1990, 300 million today, 1989, four known Mon- Christians in Mongolia today, 30,000. There are more Presbyterians in the Church of Ghana than in Scotland. You know, Christianity began as a religion and a Jewish movement towards God, and right now it is a mu- Muslim movement towards Jesus. What? How does that happen? Because he's breaking the dividing wall. He's destroying barriers. You know, sometimes when people say, I love my church, what they really mean is I love that people are like me. But the church is not a club. We don't vote the same. We have different races, and we have different economic statuses, and we have different religious backgrounds. And what Paul says to all that is, the hostility is gone. Do you think that people in Montana might need to hear that? Do you think the United, people in the Christians, in particular in the United States, might need to hear the hostility is gone? So, reconciled to God and each other. And last, what we're created to be, verse 19 to 22. There are three metaphors here. They're all beautiful. And it's super CGI. I don't even know how it works. Fellow citizens, that's... Also Philippians 3, our citizenship is somewhere else. So we're now members of a new nation. Number two, we are a household, so we're a family. We've been adopted in. And number three, we're a temple, building blocks. So think of how weird this is. We are citizens in a family, in homes that are built together, that become a temple where God dwells. So we are individuals, right? We become a family in homes that meet together, that become a temple in the place where God dwells. 
And again, it's alienation. It's we were foreigners. We were strangers. None of that is true anymore. We're the kingdom of God. So that sign that says you come in and you will die is now replaced by you are welcome. Your passport that says you can't get into this country now says you can come. Metaphor of the family. Family knows your faults. At least I hope they do. Uh, You can't hide from them. You know, families don't always get along. Some of you are here for Thanksgiving. You know what I'm talking about. You live just far enough away to still have a good relationship with your family. But families survive, and that this is the church. The, the blood of Christ overcomes divisions. You, you live with people on a, and I'm not picking on Southern Baptists, but they truly are brother-sister level. The, the relational bonds. Church is a weird place. People are weird. I mean, where else in your culture... In this culture, can you have honest, frank discussions about what hurt you where intentional learning can take place, where you can sing with people who don't sing very well? Hmm? <laughs> Third metaphor, temple, verse 19 through 22. You can see it yourself. There are no holy places in the New Testament. God's dwelling is central a theme in the Old Testament, and that presence of God is primarily in a place in the temple. And if you read Ezekiel, the glory of God leaves the temple and the exile happens. And here comes Jesus onto the scene. And John 1 says, you know, he is God and he tabernacled among us. That is, he is the temple himself. The glory of God now dwells in Christ, but also in this people. That's what Ephesians is saying. We are the temple. And it's the same thing Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Here it is. Tell me if you just, this sounds exactly like Ephesians. As you come to him, the living stone, so that's in relation to the temple, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood, offering spiritual accept, sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the stone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Do do you hear that imagery? Christ is the cornerstone. We trust him because he is the cornerstone. We are then built into a spiritual house. Something changes in the New Testament that is way different than any time before Christ. The temple is where you would go to interact with God. The temple is where the presence of God is. And now where is the temple? Well, there is one place in the New Testament where the temple is the individual Christian, and then every other verse in the New Testament, it's the church, the people of God that are the temple. Now just ask yourself, when you have talked about this, if you've been a Christian for a while, have you emphasized My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, of which there is one verse. Or is it the entire teaching of the New Testament, which is, we are the temple. We love it to just be us. Back to Ephesians 2. All Christians have something in common. Verse 21 now. We have a cornerstone, that is Jesus. We have truth, which is a common foundation, the apostles and the prophets. That's this book. The image here is that no one is a temple by themselves. Each of us are bricks. Each of us are living stones. The temple is incomplete without each stone. So let me just, here's the application now. Are you so connected with God's people as a brick that if we pulled you out, the whole building would collapse? 
except the cornerstone. Are you so built up into the people of God that if you decided to take your brick and go home, we would all know it's not there because we would all be on the ground? Do any of these metaphors fit just showing up on occasion, just kind of coming in here and slipping out? I have to get out as quick as possible, give you a little morale boost, see your friends once a week, dip in and out on your own terms to love Jesus and not his people. Is, is that what these metaphors are? Family, citizenship, bricks in a building? It's easy to feel unity with people you barely know. I can't tell you how unified I feel with Christians I meet in a plane who I know nothing about. Oh, you're a Christian. And then they pull out a book by an absolute heretic. I was like, oh. But man, that feeling of unity when I don't know someone, amazing. It is quite another thing to feel unified with people you know. One of the things I love about this church, not that people have been hurt, but people have been hurt and they're still here. There's a real unity that's different when you know someone. I mean, don't you want to be part of that, fully known? I mean, look, if, if you come to this place and you say, I am alone, that is a failure of all the bricks in this room. Could be you, but most likely a failure of the bricks in this room. 81% of American Christians are wrong. The New Testament is pretty clear. You actually need the church. God gets to define the terms of the relationship. God gets to tell you how to grow. And God gives you this family of community. Don't you see it? You, you come to follow Christ, not to have just a personal relationship with him, but to be built into a community. You're saved into a people. And that serves as a witness to everyone around you. We're not a club. People walk in here and be like, wow, I know they are different, have different opinions on a lot of things, but they sure seem happy. They sure seem joyful. They sure do embrace people. At the next chapter, in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul kind of brings this all to a climax. Listen to this. His intent, so God, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. What does manifold mean? That means multidimensional, right? That means that the church in its cultural, multicultural display, in its multilingual display, in its multiracial display, comes together in a beautiful tapestry to make one people. And so as the gospel then goes out to the world and spreads, God's wisdom is made known. One writer has said it this way, history is the theater the world is the stage. The church members of every land are the actors. God has written the play. He directs it and produces it acts by act, scene by scene. The story continues till today. And in verse 10, guess who's in the show? We are. And guess who's watching it? Verse 10, the angels. Church history is us on the stage, God displaying his manifold wisdom. I'm sure there's some tragedies in there along the way. And the angel's going, this is amazing, keep going. Citizenship, family, temple. For those who don't know Christ, I mean, don't you want that? 
for those on the fringes, just ducking in and out every week, ducking in and out, in and out. Does your commitment to any community, you, not, just one, match, family, citizenship, temple? Now, I just want to make one application here uh, for the Christians. What is a church? Scripture has some distinctions for you. Let me, let me just show you uh, in two places, and this is for you to think about. In, in Paul's letter to the Romans, right, uh, he, he says at the very beginning who he's writing to, he says this, uh, to all who are in Rome who are loved of God and called his holy people. So who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. And then in Romans 16, at the very end of it, he says this, to God's holy, oh no, greet Prisca and Aquila, greet also the church that meets in their house. So who's the book of Romans for? It's not for the church in Rome. There's no such thing. There's God's people. And then there's the church that meets in that house. Here it is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you and God our Father. So who's that letter to? All the Christians there. What's the end of the letter say? Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church in her house. Yes, there is a universal church, but the universal church is concretely displayed somewhere. That's why I'm so careful to not say the church in Bozeman. There's no such thing. There are churches in Bozeman, and there is the church for all of time that Christ loves, that Christ built. The church is a gathering. A church has leaders. A church has God's word proclaimed. A church has affirmation tools like baptism and communion to welcome people in and to remove people on occasion. If you just read any historic Protestant creed, just pick one anytime, just Google all historic Protestant creeds. Just read every single one. Every single one will say the exact same thing. It's like they're copying each other. I wonder where their source is. You haven't been saved for personal experience alone. You have been saved into a temple. You are a brick. And if you take your brick and take your ball and go home, this place should collapse without you. You are needed. Separated from God and each other, reconciled to God and each other. And in God's manifold wisdom, he is displaying his grace through a community of people one of which is this group, which I am thankful to be the pastor of. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say? In your manifold wisdom, you, you're displaying your manifold wisdom for all the nations, and all the angels are clapping. And one of those places they are clapping for is Redeemer Church in Bozeman, Montana. And so we pray for all the believers in Bozeman that they would be built up in unity, they'd be built up in Christ, and that they would become a brick in one of the churches in this community, that they would not be alone, that they would be known, that they would be loved, that they'd be cared for, that they would be shepherded. Lord, if anyone here is alone, may, may us as a community repent, and may we find those alone people um, and bring them into your temple. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.